Kabbalah and the Psychology of the Soul, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. In addition to fulfilling all of the 613 mitzvah, there's a mitzvah, there's a general theme, the spirit of the law, of all the laws, and that is to live a holy life, not to define yourself by materialism. Don't live a life of indulgence. Don't live and define yourself by money, power, fame, materialism. You have to have a deeper definition. Your life is not about money, power, fame, career, labels, titles. That, that's not what it's about, the money in the bank. That's not what it's about. Your life is about your relationship with God. That's what your life is about. The money, power, fame are tools. That's all they are, means to an end. Don't confuse the means with the end. You have to have a deeper definition, a higher definition. When do we know that a person has a deeper definition? That you're not defined by materialism. When we are materialistic and, when we, and we are, you know, our life depends on materialism. So how do I know for real whether this is, for me, it's only a means to an end or whether that's my definition? And the answer is there's one test. Do you have the ability to walk away from it? If you don't have the ability to walk away from it, then you are trapped, you are imprisoned, you are defined by it. You are not defining it, you are defined by it. If you can walk away from it, then you are the master. Then you are defining it, it's not defining you, and then it becomes a healthy, wholesome experience. And it becomes a tool, and a means to an end, and it becomes something that's holy. So this world becomes holy only when you have the ability to walk away from it. Once a week on Shabbos, a Jew walks away from the world. If you can walk away, drop your business, you can have a billion dollar deal on the table. I'm sorry, I'm out of here. I don't care. If you have a deeper definition than money, and you can just walk away from that whole world. Cold turkey, middle Friday, it comes the end of the day, that's it. I don't care what's happening. It, I'm out of here. Then you are the master. Then you know that the six days of the week that you are involved in the world, you are elevating it. Then it becomes a holy experience, a wholesome experience. But if you cannot walk away, then you are imprisoned. You are trapped. You are defined by it. How can you do tikkun olam? How can you elevate the world when you are the world? You are the problem. <laughs> you can only elevate when you're above it, when you transcend it, when you're holy. When you're holy, then you can bring holiness into the world and elevate and transform the world. But if you yourself are not holy, if you live a life of indulgence, and you are imprisoned and trapped and defined by all the externals, money, power, fame, and that becomes who you are, you cannot bring any light, any illumination, any holiness into the world. On the contrary, you can just bring darkness into the world. But you can only accomplish this if your heart is open. When you feel, when you're inspired, when you feel connected. So although you may be able to avoid transgressing a negative prohibition, even with your heart clogged, and you may have discipline to do the right thing, but there's no way in the world that you'll be able to fulfill this mitzvah of sanctifying, of making your whole life holy, unless your heart is open. Because if your heart is sluggish, and you feel dead inside, and you feel uninspired, and you feel like a heavy stone on your chest. You don't have the energy. 
You don't have the energy to walk away. Then you feel trapped. So you find it impossible to fulfill, to properly fulfill that mitzvah of sanctifying yourself, of transcending, of living a holy life, of bringing holiness into the world because of the sluggishness and the insensitivity and the dullness of your heart. So what do you do? What's the answer? He says, firstly, a person has to, obsess, has to honestly assess himself and realize his situation, who he is. We have such ugliness inside of us and no other creature in the universe has. The fact that we even have the, the ability, or the desire to go against what's right and what's, and what's moral and ethical and go against the will of Hashem. The fact that we can even have such inclinations and urges that alone places us on the bottom of the totem pole. So why are we so overtaken with ourselves and we have this over-exaggerated uh, view of ourselves? That alone is enough to humble you and put you into place. Like, realize who you are. Realize your, your position. To act in a self-destructive way. No other creature in the universe suffers. When was the last time you met an animal that suffers from addictions? That destroys itself? Only human beings. But that's only because of the potential. But in addition to that potential, let's now look at the actual. It's one thing, the potential, but how about the actual? Think of all the, the uh, crimes of youthful indiscretions that we've committed. All the self-destructive things that we did and our foolishness and our haste. Look at the things, the damage we've done to ourselves. Because... Nothing gets lost. Everything, everything that we do in life, everything is recorded, everything is registers, everything leaves an impression, everything has an impact. We don't live in a vacuum. So all the things that we did in our youthful indiscretions, they're all here, they're there. So look at all the things that we've done to harm and to destroy ourselves and to do things which are totally all the junk food and the junk lifestyle <laughs> that we've, we've acted on and the junk thoughts and speech. And this is us. These are the choices that we made. And even the sins of our youth, we were immature. You can hardly even blame us. But the bottom line is, it doesn't matter. The poison is there. The, the damage is done. It's there. So why this boastfulness and this arrogance and this super-inflated, exaggerated sense of self? Like, relax. Put, put, yourself in, put yourself in the right perspective. Put yourself in place. Who are you? Where are you at in life? Why are you so arrogant and boastful and proud of yourself? This false facade, this false ego, this exaggerated ego that's really covering up on yourself. It's not helping you in life. It's actually obstructing. It's blocking you. It's giving you a heart attack. It's blocking the flow of your blood. It's actually it's, it's getting in the way of your health. So... Why this exaggerated sense of self? All of these, all of these, when a person meditates and reflects on this, can help a person crack through that false facade, that ego, that exaggerated sense of self. And maybe once again it could spark that feeling, once again it could spark that interest, that love, that relationship, that, that connection, that, that, that feeling that we have, this relationship that we have with God. It's there, it's intact, it's whole, but we can't access it because of this, road, this roadblock, it's buried, it's submerged, it's covered up by this shell, this crust 
this ego, this arrogance, this, this exaggerated sense of self, it's time to put our, whip ourselves into shape, put ourselves into shape, to get rid of the, the, to get rid of the, the, the uh, junk that's in the way. And therefore, don't feel sad about shattering, because the only thing that you're shattering is you're shattering something that deserves to be shattered. You're not shattering the person, on the contrary. You're shattering this false persona that we've created, this false, exaggerated sense of self, this facade that we've created, this crust that doesn't allow us to have a genuine feeling. That doesn't allow us to really feel because if God and the godly spark within us is the center of our being, if we don't have a clear and open heart and an open relationship with God, then we can't have a real relationship with ourselves. And we can't have a real relationship with all those around us. Because this is the, the foundation of our being. This is the center of our being. So if, if we don't get godliness right, if we're so off about the very core and center that's located at the center of our being, the godly spark, how are we going to get anything right? We, we don't get ourselves right. You're not in touch with yourself. You're not in touch with anyone around you. So this false persona, this facade, this arrogance, this ego, this exaggerated sense of self, which actually is alienating us from our centers, alienating us from our true nature, from our true core and essence. It's alienating us from God, and it's causing this apathy and this indifference. And this, this has to be shattered. This, there's nothing good here. There's nothing good here that, that needs to be salvaged. This is a pure... It's pure arrogance, and it's a pure facade, and it's a pure illusion, and there's no reality to it. So don't start reasoning, and don't start arguing. This false persona has to be crushed. There's a beautiful story in the Talmud that um, Rabbi Lazar, the son of Rabbi Shimon ben Yechai, Bar Yechai, the author of the Zohar, he was traveling, and he meets a very ugly person. And he turns to him and he says, you know, you're the ugliest person I've ever seen in my life. And the person says, what do you want from me? Go, go to the maker who created me. <laughs> God created him. And he apologized to him and refused to accept his apology. And then he came to town and everyone came to greet him, the illustrious rabbi, Rabbi Allah, the son of Rabbi Shimon by Yechai himself. And he said to him, who are you coming to greet? He said, this wonderful rabbi. He says, wonderful rabbi? You know what, he, he insulted me. What a horrible person. And they, finally they appeased him. And they said, please forgive him. And now what happened here? Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Shimon, the illustrious rabbi, Jewish leader, went around insulting people just because they were ugly. And the explanation is, he wasn't talking about his physical, physical ugliness. He was talking about his character. He was in, in, in a spiritual ugliness. Internally, he was ugly. His character traits, his arrogance. So he looked at him, he says, wow, he's so ugly. Because nothing can get through to him. He was so ugly, he was so arrogant, he was so self-absorbed, he was so self-centered, he couldn't reach him. He was apathetic, indifferent. He looked at him and he said, he's never seen someone who's so materialistic, someone who's so self-absorbed. 
He's not open to anything. His heart is just shut down. Apathetic, indifferent, couldn't care less about anything spiritual, anything godly. There's no hunger, there's no yearning, there's no seeking, there's no searching. There's, there's nothing. He says, how am I going to get through to him? To sit and, and, to, and to talk philosophy with him and to excite him, he's not even a vessel for it. There's nobody home, there's nobody to talk to. The guy is drunk on materialism. So what do you do when you meet someone who's drunk? You've got to slap him in the face to sober him up. So he says, I'd better slap him in the face. Let me really insult him, and that will wake him up. And boy, did it wake him up. He got an insult from the great rabbi. No one likes to be insulted. And no one likes to consider themselves a brute. No one likes to admit that they're really a brute and a beast. And maybe they're living that type of life, but everyone likes to think of themselves as culture, as, as you know. And here the rabbi told him, as is, exactly who he was. He says, you're the most ugliest being, creature I've ever met in my life. And he was taken aback. And how did he respond? He immediately responded. Go to the maker. Go to my maker. Go to my creator. He created me this way. And Rabbi Lozer, he says, maybe I underestimated him. Because the fact that he immediately, immediately responded and says, go to God, that means maybe I misjudged him. Maybe God wasn't so remote in his life. Because that, that was his first response. So therefore he apologized immediately. He says, maybe I, mis, I, mis, I, I misjudged you. And I was too harsh. You didn't need such harsh treatment, such harsh medicine. And he asked his forgiveness. And the people appeased him and finally he gave his, he gave his forgiveness. And the same thing we find with the very first Jew, Avraham. Avraham and Sarah were the kindest human beings. They taught us kindness. They were the epitome of kindness. Their tent was open all four doors. Have you ever been to Beersheba? Beersheba was the, the, the southernmost uh, tip of Israel. And that was the crossroad to the whole civilized world in, those day, in, in, in that age. And Avram had a five-star hotel that he ran. And he didn't charge anyone. Everyone was welcome to come into his hotel and he served them five-course dinner. He asked for nothing in return. He gave them a bed, five-star accommodations. All he asked was one thing. At the end of the meal, he says, now, please bench. Say grace after the meal. Thank God for all this wonderful food. Most people are obliged, but there were few individuals, hardcore atheists, and he said, absolutely not. We don't believe in God. So Avram says, really? Okay. So he handed them a bill. Where else are you going to get in the middle, of, in the middle of the desert, where else are you going to get five-star accommodations? And all seasons, he had a royal table, a royal feast. So he handed, he says, listen, if this world is a jungle and it's just a marketplace, and the only thing you worship is the almighty dollar, and the only thing you worship is yourself, okay, well, in the jungle, this is the value of what I gave you. And he would hand them such a bill, you know, five-star accommodations. They saw the bill, they said, you know, I think I'm beginning to understand what, you, what you're trying to tell me. I think I'm beginning to see the light. That there, there is a God. And they would say the grace after the meal. Now, what was the point? Avram was twisting their arm to say the grace after the meal. If, I mean, obviously he was pressuring them. He was forcing them. So what was the meaning of them saying the grace after the meal? And the answer is because there are no atheists in Foxhalls. In the moment of truth, deep down, everyone believes. Everyone has faith. 
Everyone has some connection to God. Everyone is created in the image of God. All human beings. But there was a shell, there was a crust, there was a thick crust, a coarseness, which came as a result of a life of indulgence, a life without any restraints, a life without any responsibility, a very selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed life. And this creates an arrogance, and this creates apathy and indifference to anything spiritual. And Avram couldn't reach that person. He saw this person was unreachable. Because even after showering them with such kindness and such goodness, that he personally, they personally just experienced the results of godliness. Avram was a godly person. Everything he did was because he was a godly person. Because God gives us free and everything we have, he gives us gratuitously, he gives us life, he gives us health, he gives us success. Whatever we have, he gives us without asking any. So Avram in turn also became godly and also gave. So they were immersed in holiness and godliness and nothing reached them. With all their arrogance, after being on the receiving end, receiving all this wonderful, being showered with all this wonderful kindness, it didn't move them one iota. Most people were moved. Most people were touched by this kindness. And they thanked God. But they were not touched one iota. So Avram saw there's no way to reach these people. How do you deal with apathy and indifference? The person is not reachable. So he says, I'm going to have to crack. I'm going to have to crack the shell. So the, the loving Avram, who couldn't hurt a fly, suddenly turned into this, this very mean, tough person, and he pressured them, and he put a lot of pressure on them, and he gave them a bill. He said, you're not leaving it until you pay this bill. If you don't want to say grace, that's fine. It's your choice. But then, then you're going to have to pay this bill. But the purpose wasn't just to be mean and tough on them. The purpose was to elicit the response because once he cracked their shell once he slapped them across the face and it stung and it hurt but then they woke up they sobered up and the moment they sobered up he says ah, I'm beginning to, I think I know what you mean of course I know there's a God let's say uh, you, a person has known the right thing to do and the wrong thing to do but they're kind of like the, uh, the, the dunce in the classroom they sit in the back all of the smart kids are up front. They're doing the best they can, but they keep on making mistakes. And then, over time, it finally sinks in, and now they're at a point where there's no way that they could do something wrong, because they not only know it intellectually, but they know it at a, at a gut level, and it doesn't even occur to them anymore to do something wrong. They, they just feel the right way to go. Isn't that a, a deeper level of, a, of atonement? And doesn't that bring about a little bit of a party, you know, a little bit of a celebration that, okay, that, now this person that's been sitting in the back, they can actually come up to the right. front of the class now. Right. They may not be a, a tzaddik, but in, in a sense, uh, because they weren't a tzaddik, they had to put, so, put, put right. forth so much effort right. to actually just to maybe even get to the middle of the class. <laughs> right. Well, that's why the... Baltruva, the place that the Baltruva can reach, the tzaddik can't reach. The Baltruva reaches a much higher level than the tzaddik. To use another analogy, you have the student in the class who's very bright and understands everything the first time around. And then you have, like you said, the dunce in the class whose head is so thick, nothing can get through. As much as the teacher explains, and it just can't get through. But that student persisted mm -hmm. and refused to give up and literally broke their head 
went over it again and again, drilled their head until they really understood it. And some of the greatest rabbis in Eastern Europe before the wars, they were known. They, they, their classes were legendary. Their lectures were legendary. And the Talmud were legendary. One of them in particular was known. He had a thick head. He, he couldn't understand anything. But he had such a willpower. He decided that nothing is going to stop him. And he would learn every piece of Talmud, chew it over a hundred times till it got through his thick skull. And he worked so hard that he developed one of the most powerful minds in Eastern Europe. His, his uh, lectures were legendary. You know, the dean of the yeshiva. So, in a way, a person who understands everything at, on the first, first level versus if, if you face difficulties, it's difficult for you to understand. A subject matter that's difficult for you to understand. And you have many questions, and it doesn't make sense to you, and it's not clear. And then you persist, and you dwell in it, and you focus in it until, and you work hard, you break your head, it's like, it's like a murder. And then you figure it out. Firstly, there's a satisfaction in that, that the person, the other person cannot possibly experience. The satisfaction of having worked something through honestly, and really working it through until you truly get the concept. But there's also a depth for that concept. There's a depth that the other person is lacking. There's a richness that the other person doesn't have. There's a clarity and a depth because it came as a result of the question, because it came as a result of, 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 of the difficulty. And that's why we find, for example, there are two Talmuds. There's the Jerusalem Talmud and there's the Babylonian Talmud. Most people never even studied the Jerusalem Talmud. The accepted Talmud, the Talmud that everyone studies, is the Babylonian Talmud. The halacha, the law, follows the Babylonian Talmud. Whenever there's a conflict in the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud. Now, the Jerusalem Talmud was on a much higher level than the Babylonian Talmud. It would, it was, it would, they were living in Israel. They were on a much more elevated spiritual level. Versus the Babylonian Talmud was written in exile. As the exile deepened, the darkness deepened, grew thicker. And the Jews were in Babylonia, in Iraq, outside of Israel. And, and yet the law is like the Babylonian Talmud. The Jerusalem Talmud is very short, very brief. Because everything was clear. The Babylonian Talmud is almost torturous. Till it reaches a conclusion, there's questions upon question upon question and contradictions and pages upon pages of discussions till, till you reach a conclusion. But it, this is like the student, the dunce who had to work hard who had to overcome the question, versus the students who just has a clear head. Everything is clear. He gets it the first time around. Everything is... But you know, in a certain way, it's also very superficial. It's the student who had to overcome the difficulty, overcome the question, that reaches a much, much richer, a much deeper understanding, a much more penetrating understanding, a much more profound understanding than the student who understands it with a good head. And that's why even the student who has a good head Real learning is only accomplished when you really, it engages your mind, when you really have to break your head. And it's like the, that's like the difference between water, rainwater, comes from heaven, versus well water that flows from the ground. Which water is richer in minerals? Is it the rainwater or is it the well water, spring water? People are buying bottled water. They're not buying uh, rainwater. 
they're buying well water, well spring. Because the well water is much richer because it flows through the ground. Because it has to overcome all those obstacles, therefore it comes out much purer, much richer in minerals than, than even rainwater, which comes straight from heaven. And that's the story of the soul in general. The soul in heaven above is like the tzaddik. It's perfect. The soul has no obstructions. In heaven there's no apathy. In heaven there's no indifference. In heaven there's no arrogance. There's no ego. In heaven is heavenly. It's blissful. It's heavenly. There's clarity. You see godliness. It's tangible. The heart is open. The mind is open. The eyes are open. Everything is open. Clear. And then the soul journeys into this world. The soul is not born. The body is born. The soul journeys into the body. It's a journey for the soul. And suddenly everything is shut down. The eyes don't see and the ears don't hear and the mind doesn't understand and the heart is clogged and we have to struggle with apathy and indifference and we stop caring. And setbacks and negative behavior. But when the soul overcomes all these obstacles, then it's much richer, it's much deeper. The soul reaches a, a richness and a depth that the soul cannot possibly achieve in heaven. It's like, it's like when you take a water. Water is very calm by nature. But try placing a dam in front of the water. Suddenly this quiet brook turns into this ferocious, powerful energy. If that dam is not built well, if that dam breaks, it's going to sweep everything in its path. It becomes so powerful. Roaring water. That's the story of the soul. The soul is in heaven. It's like a brook. It's calm, serene, serenity. And it comes into this world and suddenly it's blocked. The ego, the arrogance, it blocks the soul. The soul is trapped. The soul is not allowed to express itself. We can't feel and we can't express our feelings. We can't access those feelings and we feel arrogant and apathetic and indifferent and we couldn't care less. We, we lose that spiritual hunger. We lose that spiritual appetite. We lose that excitement, that thrill of our relationship with God. The, but what happens? The soul is not quiet. The soul starts agitating. The soul suddenly becomes, turns into this ferocious power that, that pushes everything in its path, that suddenly the sin, everything that's in its path, suddenly gets washed away and uprooted. And the negative itself also becomes a positive, also starts flowing with the water. The former obstacle now goes with the flow. So even the negative, not only have you neutralized the negative, the, the negative now goes in the same direction as the water. So th you feel that breakthrough, there's this powerful energy. So the soul discovers a depth, a power that it didn't even dream of. It never even knew, it never even suspected that it had such strength and such force. It's only by journeying into this world. When we're faced with all these obstacles that we're dealing with here, we have to overcome this apathy and indifference, which is really the most difficult obstacle of all. When you successfully overcome it, the soul reaches a depth and a richness that it could not possibly have achieved if it would, it would have remained in heaven in a heavenly, heavenly state. So that, that's what he said earlier. You have to appreciate it. God is not creating these obstacles just to make life, just to make life fun. <laughs> He's creating these obstacles because it's time, you know, you, you have opportunities here. There's an opportunity. You can reach such a level of depth, such a level, such a genuine level, such a richness that you can never, ever achieve up in heaven. So it's really an opportunity. It's a positive. It's not a negative. Kabbalah and the psychology of the soul, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky.